You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Welcome to SequelCast 2, a part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. We are covering Land of the Dead, the fourth film in George A. Romero's sixth film, Living Dead, trilogy, uh, Sextet, I guess you'd call it, or the beginning of the second trilogy. You could also call it that, although I don't think that really works. Uh, anyhow, this movie stars Simon Baker, Dennis Hopper, Asia Argento, and John Leguizamo. Cinematography by Miroslav Bazak, edited by Michael Doherty. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. I'm just in here being helpful. And Alex. I'm Dennis Hopper, man. The walking dead are walking around like they own the police, man. I wouldn't have shot the guy in the head, man, if you would have called me a few minutes earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know about you, Thrasher, but uh, Alex and I were talking for the show, and for us, this was our first time watching this movie for the show. I mean, when this came out in 2005, this was a big... There was kind of like the start of like the modern wave of zombie uh, becoming popular again. Yeah, this was... Uh, for this show, it was the first time I saw this as, as well. Really? Uh, this, uh. this film this film is, is interestingly placed, because like one, it, it's such a gap between, uh, between the previous movie and this one. But then... Uh, Beyond that, I don't know if you noticed this, but you know th- this is at this point when this movie was being made, a whole generation of filmmakers, in some cases very successful filmmakers, have been influenced by Romero's work. Sure. And now it's it's kind of coming back around. Did you spot that Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright are in this movie? I didn't I, until I, I saw the no. picture. <laughs> I did not. Were they a zombie or? Yeah, they are the, the, okay, so you know the scene where they have the zombies chained up and people will take photos with them? Mm-hmm. That's Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Hmm. They are the photo booth zombies. Well, that's a real blink it and you miss it cameo. Um, I, well, they're I under believe... so much makeup, you can't recognize yeah. them. Yeah. Eli Roth might be a zombie in here too, although I could be misremembering that, but. Well, there's a pretty substantial Tom Savini zombie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Land of the Dead, this came out in 2005, you know, about 20 years after Day of the Dead. It's uh, opening weekend was June 26, 2005. So, like, I had just gotten out of college at Savannah College Art and Design. Uh, That's where I was in my life and depressed in my mom's basement. Um, What do you think... Its place was in the domestic box office. Domestic meaning uh, U.S. 25th. I'm going to go. No. Universal Pictures. This was a big release. I'm going to go just outside 10. I'm going to say like 12. Number five. Oh, shit. Wow. So pretty high for a Romero picture. I'm just, I'm not trying to bash Romero, but he 
got the short end of the stick with distribution of a lot of his films. Almost all uh, Unfortunately, them, yeah. he never got the respect he deserved, just like Toby Hooper. And they both died, like, around the same time, which is tragic, tragic. But Yeah, super sucks. Number five with uh, $10.2 million. Uh, above it at number four, <laughs> Herbie Fully Loaded. The, wow. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Lohan, I think it's the fifth Herbie uh, picture. We should do those in this show. The, I think that'd be fun. The, the one where Thomas movie. Lennon and Robert Ben Garant took a pass on the script. There's funny stories about that in their screenwriting book, right? Oh, Lord, yes. It's multiple stories. Have you heard of that book, Alex? No, I haven't. They, they did a, a guide to screenwriting called How to Write Movies for Fun and Profit, except fun and is crossed out. <laughs> and they make a big point throughout the book of citing exactly how much money their movies have made. <laughs> <laughs> it's really delightful. But it's also, now, in addition to being humorous, it's got solid advice in it. Nice. And a lot of good war stories of doing punch-up on scripts, um, oh, as boy. well as doing, I mean, they did some of the Night at the Museum stuff, I believe. Yep. Okay. And they, there's a good extended bit about how he's, one of their intelligent Einstein jokes got rewritten into Einstein uh, bobblehead dolls singing, I've got to move it, move it. <laughs> <laughs> love it okay so we're going to do a special episode one day about our favorite books about filmmaking uh, I love that idea and definitely. Yeah, definitely. that's for another time so another thing I love about this movie uh, Super Mario Brothers the movie reunion I, I, yes you have John Logazamo and Dennis Hopper and they're in the same scene together you know people can say like oh it's a reunion but a lot of times when they say that the, these actors are in different scenes but this they're in the same scene Right. And uh, it's it, it's fun to see him work together. I think uh, uh, Leguizamo in particular and, and kind of Hopper, um, I think to a lesser extent, are, are quite good in this. Well, Hopper, yeah. well, well, one is that Hopper has just the Hopper intensity. So like e even when he's not really committing, that intensity comes through and that always helps the performance. Uh, also, he, he's he's almost he's on the verge of going full Koopa throughout this movie, which I think uh, is, is beneficial to it. Uh, but then the other thing is Hopper, like they all they both have always made interesting choices in his career, although at this point. Hopper was in the fuck it, I'll do anything point of his career. Um, like from the 90s, from like the late 90s on, he was just showing up in the weirdest stuff for a paycheck, like Space Truckers, that one movie with Anna Nicole Smith. Uh, so like, mm. I love that he's here. I love that they're both here. They're two of my favorite actors. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to, to oh, yeah. quote Seinfeld. No, it's, there's something about a, a working actor. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson does a lot of movies because he loves to work. Uh, and, and people go through different things in their career, but yeah, you know, the, the people might, uh, older listeners might remember that, um, Dennis Hopper was in a horror picture before with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he has and, some, uh, I, I feel like he's maybe channeling it just a little bit here. And, um, I think, uh, I, I do really like John Leguizamo as like a failed future badass. I'm totally sold on that. And also just like Dennis Hopper playing like the like the swear engine of this universe is, is great. Um, I said this earlier off mic, I think, but uh, we're, we're, we're a Dennis Hopper house here and anything mm. with Dennis in it is good. And that's a rule I came up with and I stand by. I've been meaning to watch Dennis Hopper's uh, other things he's directed besides um, Easy Rider. Out of the Blue is 
really underrated and it's actually a really strong film it's not perfect but that's kind of why i like it is that it's i'd rather see something ambitious and kind of lopsided than than clean and good indeed um you know like a lot of the day of the dead pictures it takes or a lot of romero pictures period it takes place in pittsburgh okay. although they don't really make a big deal out of what city this is in and you have um in the scenario i mean we mentioned this before this movie series does not really have a strong chronology from movie to movie it it's assumed it's the same zombie evasion maybe it could be a different one as what we saw in night of the living dead but let's just assume it is and what i love is this one is really uh urban it takes it to the streets and you have a lot of of people of color in the cast which uh romero usually does a good job of of um having multiracial casting, but you have a lot of characters with competing uh, needs and, and kind of groups. And I felt really bad for the zombies in this one. I keep on saying yeah. that, but in this especially, uh, you have kind of a supporting character that's that's a zombie that has no dialogue, but it, I think it, it works better than like Bub did in Day of the Dead. Yeah, well, this... we spend a lot of time with them. Well, beyond that, this is also the first time we've seen a zombie that has sort of drives and goals beyond just eating, which is a really fascinating dynamic. Yeah, and they can almost, like, communicate with them. They definitely elaborate on, like, the, the bub uh, dynamic in this one, and they establish it pretty early on when they're kind of scouting out on the streets, and they're like, it's like, oh, damn, it's like they're communicating. You have, like, the couple zombie and then the main dude zombie we see throughout the movie and I think this is like a perfect continuation in the Ramiro tradition of like, it just gets worse and that yes. like, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty gnarly. And then naturally this one's like, you know, Mad Max style. It's like the, it's like the movie version of like the bikers who ruin everything and Dawn of the dead. <laughs> I never thought Mad Max while watching this, but that's a good point in that a lot of the action centers around this uh, thing called the dead reckoning, which is kind of like, a, like an APC uh, armored personnel carrier, um, heavily armored, a lot of weapons, a lot of high-powered uh, missiles and guns a lot and of things. A lot of gadgets and a lot of a lot of jury-rigged technology. I love that whenever we see them interacting with with the weapons or the systems on the Dead Reckoning vehicle, like they never quite match up. Like the like the video game joysticks they sometimes use to control the weapons versus the the car parts they sometimes use to control the weapons. It's really nice. And it is. Go on. I think it's a testament to of like this world has existed longer, obviously, than Night of Dawn of and Day of. So if you're still alive at this point, it means you're good at surviving, which means you're you're, right. you're going to have all these, you know kludged uh you know guns and, and bikes and, and buses and stuff ironically romero was able to get the funding for this because of a success of a movie based off of video game that uh was based you know basically ripped off his zombie films resident evil That's oh right. wow i believe by the time this one came out they had already done two resident evils uh and um you know paul ws anderson i i'm gonna we should do a special episode on him. I think he's interesting. Uh, but he has done a lot of very low-budget pictures with a lot of sequels that are always profitable. And that's, I think, keeping the budget low is really a smart move. Romero, Romero has always done that. And he has, you know, according to Box Office Mojo, the budget was around $20 million or so, um, not including marketing. And 
you can see there's a bit more of a scope to this than the past uh, Living Dead pictures we've we've been talking about here. You get to see the city streets, and more importantly, Fiddler's Green is really important to the story. It's the most living extras we've ever seen in one of these movies. Uh, Thrasher, why don't you describe Fiddler's Green to the listeners? Uh, no, just that it's this uh, it's this big kind of fancy upscale shopping district. And it has living quarters, too. The, well, I've, I've never actually been there, so I can't... I'm well, not okay, sure it doesn't really a, exist. But I'm not I sure assumed, if that was the liberty they took for the movies or not. Right. I assumed they had living quarters and stuff because they, they make a big point. It's blocked off by a gate. It has all this security. Uh, the character played by Dennis Hopper, who I think is Kaufman. Yeah, Paul Kaufman. Anytime they call him Kaufman, I thought of Lloyd Kaufman, which I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's intentional reference or not. Lloyd Kaufman of trauma fame. But um, yeah, it was just one of those things where you look and uh, it's sort of the satir- main satirical thing in this film. Uh, although overall, I'd say it's a more serious film than uh, some of the, and especially, you know, Night of the Living, or the second one, uh, Dawn of the Dead. And up at the very top is Paul Kaufman, this like Trumpian kind of guy. I think watching now, I think of Trump, but also that it's certainly trying to be uh, an analog to George W. Bush. Well, if it Bush and Cheney were the same person, you would have Kaufman. And right. had a lot of money. I mean, they do have a lot of money, but like a lot, a lot of money. Because he talks about uh, this Kaufman character, Dennis Hopper, kind of the main, I guess you could say bad guy uh, in this, the heavy, is he, he spent all this money for the security and all this stuff. Like he views Fiddler's Green as like a great success. But it is, keep in mind, this is 2005. This is before... The, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, but it's kind of that similar thing going on and that, you know, the rich are very rich and they shut off all the poor and they fuck all the poor. And, and you have this good, I think, um, social satire in here that Romero tends to have in his pictures. Yeah, I think like what you get with like consumer culture and Dawn of the Dead and then what you get with like military culture and Day of the Dead, what you have is the post 9-11 culture in Land of the Dead is that I feel like this is even the private military contractors, yeah. Exactly. And I think like what you get with, um, while this is like an extension of the, you know, stuff that went before in his movies, that this feels like a, a zombie apocalypse that occurred after 2001. <laughs> Culturally, that is. But it's also, it's also in the, I would say the more interesting phase of, of a world with zombies, which I wish more movies and books uh, kind of dealt with, is that this is pretty built up. These are people who zombies are now just a fact of life uh, and people just mm. ha- have to deal with them. And there's whole, there's whole industries based on <laughs> dealing with zombies. Like I really like just that carnival, that carnival atmosphere, you know, where people are, there's the, there's the zombie dancers, there's the zombies you take photos with and the rich people are slumming it down there, getting their photos taken with the zombies, the, uh, the fighting pits where they will, that was one of the more really kind of gripping scenes. There's this fighting pit where they will spray paint the zombies mouths, different colors, and then throw a living person in there. And of course, the paint on their mouths is how you know which zombie won the fight by landing the killing blow. That it, that was just such a delightfully grim scene. It's this really savage pit fighting, and just how uh, how scummy it all feels. It makes it feel very lived in, very worn, very real, and it, it's a huge contrast to to what we see of the 
I mean, I don't, you know, the inside of Fiddler's Green uh, reminds me of uh, some of the posher uh, resorts in Las Vegas. You know, everyone's dressed really nice. Everything's like sparkly and uh, and shiny. They're wearing good, nice clothes. And yet, it, it's, I found it fairly predictable that, of course, at some point, the zombies are going to breach Fiddler's Green. Oh, obviously. <laughs> yeah. It, and and the main conflict in here, though, really is with uh, humans. And I, I think that really wor- worked, kind of like one one squad hunting another squad, and they have competing interests, and one of the guys used to work together. Well, you know what, what I, I occurred to me now is that the second half of the movie, this really does become Apocalypse Now, Heart of Darkness in a way. Uh because our, our main our main guy, uh, Riley, his long-term plan is that he's tired of living in this like w- weird, urbanized, uh, feudal society that Dennis Hopper's created. So his long-term goal is he wants to get a car. He's going to go up north to Canada, see what's up there. Uh, and the movie begins with his last ride out with this uh, scavenging party hunting for resources in the ruins of a city. And when he gets back, he's like, all right, going to get my car and I'm going to go. And he gets screwed out of his car. And him trying to get that car so he can just leave becomes a huge thing. And so when John Leguizamo gets screwed over, John Leguizamo, who wants to move up into the upper levels, you know, get into high society, when he's denied that, he steals the dead reckoning and decides to hold the city hostage. So, so, uh... So Riley then gets sent out to track him down as if Leguizamo was Colonel Kurtz. And it's quite funny that when um, John Leguizamo, who plays a character called Cholo, which, I mean, that name is so stereotypical. I wish they would have <laughs> called him something else. But well, Everyone has kind of... Ha- that's a naming convention for a lot of the, a lot of the characters. All the sure. names are slightly regrettable. Like uh, Phil Fondacaro, who's this, this awesome little person actor who you, you, you have seen plays mm-hmm. uh, Chihuahua, this sort of like pimp slash nightclub owner slash fight right. promoter. Uh, or, or, uh, oh, is it, uh, one of the, one of the, the soldiers who goes out with Riley and when he gets his mission, uh, Pedro Miguel RC plays Pillbear, Pillsbury. And he has, I will be charitable, a Pillsbury Doughboy body type. Yeah, it's like uh, with Cholo, though, it almost it's like right up there, like ombre. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> In terms of uh, naming, but then again, with with nicknames, you never get to choose them. You you, you get them. Like I mean, at not. least they at least they didn't call him Taco or something like that. <laughs> yeah, true. Worse, but it, it, it as I think that's somewhat regrettable, but. Hey, I, you know, I haven't made movies or anything, so what do I know? But with uh, all of this, Leguizamo uh, looks good in this picture. I mean, he he worked out. He got in shape. Uh, not that he's really fat, but he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't have the dad bod thing going on. And I, I like that uh, with kind of the rugged nature of inside the Dead Reckoning, he has a, a pull-up bar installed on there. <laughs> well, there is even a scene where, where he does pull-ups. See where we see him working out and I'm just wondering, yeah. is that, is that to reveal character or is that sort of like in the contract? Well, if I'm going to work so hard to get in such good shape, the audience is going to see it. Damn it. Yeah. There you go. I'm reminded and, of a story uh, from the, the making of the fly remake from David Cronenberg, where uh, Jeff Goldblum had to work out and had weights was lifting weights constantly. And to kind of compete with him, Cronenberg would lift weights constantly. And he said, I was in the best shape of my life filming the fly. <laughs> so I kept on competing with Goldblum. 
That's great. There's um and John Leguizamo too. He's like almost in some ways analogous to Dennis Hopper in that he just keeps on working mm-hmm. um, whether or not you know whatever movie he's in is good or not is really beside the point. He's um you know yeah. I kind of thought he had fallen out of vogue and he's back in in Land of the Dead. And I'm looking like no he didn't fall out of vogue. He <laughs> was a workhorse man. Oh, well, and, and like uh, John C. Riley or, or people like that, he, he's a character actor. He also he mixes big studio projects with indie projects. Exactly. Ten for me, and, one for them. Uh, yep, definitely. And he's terrific in this. Um, like I said, I totally buy him as a as a failed world badass, and uh, he he does it well. Like I love him sucking on the cigarette, being being a tough guy, and he's kind of he's like he's aping the embodiment of like the tough guy. Um, you know, of the tough guy persona, and also, like, he's aping it and embodying it at the same time, and I think it really works for his performance. Certainly, and uh, I, I just love he calls uh, Kaufman, Dennis Hopper's character, and, and threatens him, and uh, Kaufman's, like, I don't know, like, money accountant or something tells him, like, just give him the money. And had that happened, this would have been a very uh, different picture. Yeah, if he had just... Yeah. If he could have avoided all let, this trouble, let Leguizamo into high society or paid him or bought him off, the, ever, the Fiddler's Green would still be standing by the end of this movie, quite possibly. And I think that's a good setup, too, with uh, Dennis Hopper or Fiddler's Green, because with each movie, the zombies become almost less threatening. So, in order mm-hmm. to have a good contrast, in order to have good heavy, you have to have a good actor play that guy and set him up as a proper villain. And who better than that to do that than Dennis Hopper? And while Hopper underplays it, he does seem pissed off a lot of the time. And I don't know if he didn't yeah. want to do this movie. Like, I don't know if he's maybe doing some, uh, some channeling some of that energy or something. But it, I've never quite seen him underplay this much. And yet, yet it works. Yeah, I've never seen him underplay this much since he got sober. Um, mm-hmm. Like after, you know, you got like like Blue Velvet, Waterworld, Speed. Like he's like at eleven in all these movies. So I was kind of, I was honestly expecting that. And I, I feel like he could have put the, you know, pedal to the metal a little bit more. But um, I'm still happy, and I still love what he's doing here. Um, and, but yeah, no, I definitely could have used more of that, you know, manic madman energy. But I don't know if he would have regretted it. He seems like someone who always kind of, like, you know, while he would take anything at this point, I think he's someone that would gravitate to someone like Romero. Because they're both filmmakers. They probably identify with each other. I'm sure they had to have some kind of uh, simpatico there. Uh, so let's let's talk about the zombies, because we, we get our first true protagonist zombie uh, in this movie. Uh, goes by, uh, credited as Big Daddy. He's played by Eugene Clark, uh, an actor who I have seen, uh, I've, actually, uh, I've actually run into. He was a, a feature at the Scare, Scarefest convention in Lexington, Kentucky for a few years. Uh, and... One of the things that, like, sort of during during the opening raid, where they're all, you know, they're s- stealing liquor and other resources from the town, there's all the zombies kind of comically going about the business of what they would do when they were alive, like the like the zombie oompa band in the gazebo. <laughs> so, so Big Daddy is like a, a mechanic and like gas station uh, attendant, uh, and there's just this l- little thing in the beginning when. When they realize when he grunts, the other zombies take notice and change their behavior. So like, oh, clearly they're communicating. But after the raiders just arbitrarily shoot some zombies while leaving, 
he starts organizing the zombies and leading a slow march towards Pittsburgh. And it's and it's really fascinating seeing him take on this zombie, taking on a leadership position, getting people getting people organized just with this series of grunts. And like in in a lesser movie, it would be comical, but in this movie, it's it's horrifying and intriguing. And after a while, you're kind of on his side. It's true, um, and it is interesting. And it's a, he's a very they gave him this great makeup, and he's very distinctive. You can definitely. You're never looking for him. He, he jumps right out the camera. The camera, the camera loves him, and um, it's a great mime performance in so many ways. Right. You you feel the anguish on on his face. Uh, he, he's especially good in a scene where he sees a uh, like a power drill, like a construction company thing. Oh, oh yeah, the jackhammer. The jet. That's a jackhammer, and. He walks forward, and of course, it unplugs, and he can't really use it as uh, it's intended, and he gets frustrated. But he still like drags it with the determination, going like, "Oh, this is a weapon. This is a big, heavy object. I can use it to to break glass and and break locks off doors and things." And I thought, like, "Wow, that's pretty neat." Because I thought, because at first, thought, "Oh no, he has a uh, jackhammer," but it didn't even, you know, I've never used a jackhammer. I didn't know you have to plug it into anything. I thought it ran off of. <laughs> batteries or, some shit. or something yeah. yeah or gas yeah exactly right and uh and that they have that extra moment it's kind of that romero humor i mean overall this film is more serious uh as i mentioned earlier but it, it has those little kind of comedy moments and uh, speaking of the zombies you you have uh the gore effects in this a lot of practical effects but um cg blood spatters which i, I think when this was made in 2005 are not quite there they can do that a lot better now yeah, that uh, was one thing. I, sorry, go. Well, bet better, but not well. I would, I would say. I and when so when this movie started with the the sort of digital opening credits, I was so nervous. I was really worried I was going to see something kind of on the level of a Sci-Fi Channel original movie. And to to this movie's credit, while it's all filmed on on digital video, it's still filmed like an old school. We're getting out the Super Eight camera kind of movie, and that elevates that elevates the digital filmmaking that makes the shots like that 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 gloss of fantasy that digital film removes from a movie that only helped ground it uh and i will say to the for the cgi blood splatters i will give this movie credit um it never lingers on the blood splatter you see the blood splatter just long enough to realize it's digital but they always cut away before your brain remembers what makes digital blood splatter so unconvincing so they kind of cut around that limitation and overall i felt that it worked yeah i think um i had the same feeling you did thrasher when the credits started i'm like oh no like it's just gonna be one of those you know clunky sci-fi channel level you know i'm thinking you know cgi heads exploding and all that junk um and i did notice that and i i, I did you know i made some gripes about it and um but also i think like it's unfortunately like it's just at this point like you said that it could be done well like it could be done better but not well and um unfortunately it's just like the times we live in i think like cgi blood splatters are just kind of a thing that is going to be here um well, the reason you do yeah. CGI blood splatter is to save money, but more importantly, time. Because yeah, to, exactly. to do a traditional physical effect of blood, you have uh, what they call squibs, and you set them off, and they, they're basically little explosions on the actor's body or, or on the, the dummy's right. body. 
And it's technically a pyrotechnic, you know. Uh, yes, correct. Yeah. Yep. So it's a lot of it's it's gonna save you a lot of time and money, but um, but yeah, no, it, like you said, the the sheen that you would normally have with like a you know large thirty-five millimeter project, it kind of brings it like the kind of down and dirty um, like aesthetic of the film is kind of like how digital should be treated. It should be like this. Mm you know, down and dirty kind of, uh, you know, more accessible version of filmmaking. And I think uh, Romero tapped into that before a lot of other people did. With a... I, yeah, I, I didn't know this one was digital because um, I thought it would have looked like shit because in, in 2005, <laughs> shooting on digital uh, for a major feature was somewhat unusual. Now it's difficult to find something that's not shot or projected yeah. for digital in that matter. So, so someone I'm surprised we haven't talked about is that... Uh, so Riley does have uh, he, he's not a sidekick. He has kind of a, he has a partner, uh, Charlie Hoke, played by Robert Joy, who you might remember from The Hills has has eyes. The Hills have eyes where he played Lizard. He, mm. He's a really interesting character because he's a character that has that has some sort of like mental impairment. And it, it's never it's never nailed down whether he just has a developmental disability or whether he suffered a traumatic brain injury. Although the longer this movie goes on, the more I, I, I think we're supposed to infer that he has a uh, has a brain injury because he has all that scarring on one side of the face and he makes reference about being pulled from a fire. So there's any number of of, of, of head injuries he could have taken in that. But he's this he, he he's introduced as this kind of like lo lovable dope, but as the movie goes forward we see just how focused and how skilled and how essential he is to to living in this in this post zombie world and that all the weird little quirks he has they all serve they all serve a purpose and have helped him and have helped Riley survive and he makes it to the end of the movie <laughs> mhm mm i sure, it, sure. It, i don't think he was brain damaged it struck me as he was maybe being uh, a bit autistic but that could they, be as well. They don't say what it is. Uh, Romero, with his screenwriting, it's pretty. Uh, how do I say this? Like, like to the point. It's pretty direct and to the point. It doesn't spend a lot of time on character. It's more about momentum. Uh, and yeah, um, one thing I wish I would have looked into. I didn't realize this is uh, Land of the Dead had a tie-in video game that came out on the PC and Xbox that was a prequel called Land of the Dead: Road to Fiddler's Green. Uh, I imagine um, it's not very good, but I haven't played it, but I'll have to check that out sometime. Yeah, there's, um, how do you guys feel about Ozzy Argento in this? You feel good. like it kind of like came all full circle with, uh, keeping it all in the family as, um, Dario Argento was a co-producer on Dawn of the Dead. Oh, I didn't even make that connection. No, I, I think she's good. I think she's solid. There, there's not a lot with the part, but she's uh, now, you know, a, a director herself and has directed a lot of cool stuff. She was in a relationship with the late Anthony Bourdain, um, sadly. Uh, and uh, longer with us, yeah. That still gets to me, but yeah, it yeah, sucks. as it does, uh, he's a great guy. We should do a special episode on him. You yeah. know, it's not related to, I guess, it's television. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Um, yeah. But yeah, Asia Argento is slack. It's the kind of role I can imagine Mila Jovovich playing that she's done in a million times or Charlize Theron. Like, yeah, it's not a great part, but she gets some action to do. She's not the quivering princess. 
Exactly. Yeah, she's a she's a born badass. She, she would never be a mm. face in a locket or a quivering princess or, or a babe in the woods. Um, I would have liked to have seen her do more, but um, her energy always livens things up, and I have always been a fan of her as an actor and uh, director. Um, I one thing, my I guess minor complaint, which is it kind of sounds stupid, but one thing I don't know if you guys like this got under your skin at all, but um, do you feel like it's a little overcast? Because I feel like other Romero films are so low key mm. and they're so like, you know, no stars, just talent type thing. And with this, it's like, you have, you know, John Leguizamo, Dennis Hopper, Rossi Argento, Bobby Boop. Um, whereas before it's like, you've kind of got a lot of, you know, local talent, so to speak, and you don't have anyone stand out at you. Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering. Come along and play! Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. I, I don't know. I, I didn't know if maybe that was part of the budget. You know, it's like, hey, George, you can make your movie, but you got to cast, like, this guy, that guy, and this, you know. Mm. Um, but did it distract you or take you guys out of the movie at all? The only time it took... Well, there's... Okay, there's only two times where the casting, I would say, kind of took me out of the movie. One was when Tom Savini's machete zombie showed up they linger on him for so long and let him be so badass. I I really kind of turned turned against it, and and, yeah. and I and I realize you know he he's he's Tom Savini. I'm sure he's like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be a zombie, I'm gonna be the most badass zombie uh, ever. But I wish they had left less of that in. Uh, uh, but then the other thing is at the at the end. So th- there, there's an amazing change up at the end where when Riley uh, when Riley um, finds uh finds cholo he still kind of says well i still just want to go to canada so he does he does talk to cholo but eventually you know he, he realizes you know you're, he's never you know kaufman's never going to give either of us what we want so just go and i'll take the truck back to him you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll get the money and, and you know you you can just go and do whatever and cholo ends up getting bitten and they never spell it out but i believe but the implication is that when you get bit by a zombie it's not that the bite transfers the zombie disease because they establish that anyone who dies intact comes back as a zombie, but it's that the zombie's mouth is so full of bacteria, the wound is instantly septic, and that's going to kill you. And so what he decides to do is he just slowly walks back to Fiddler's Green, and by the time he catches up to Kaufman, he is now a zombie. But when Kaufman realizes that Cholo is coming to him when he's trying to get in his limo and escape... Cholo spent so much time in the shadows, all I could think was, oh, they didn't have John Leguizamo yeah. on this day of filming. But no, it turns out they did, because huh. Leguizamo shows up at the final moment with full zombie makeup. And I guess it's, but but he spent so much time in darkness, it is so, so distracting seeing a Leguizamo-type silhouette in the parking garage. Yeah. The, the Leguizamo stuff with him getting bitten, I would have could have used maybe 10 more minutes of Leguizamo and having that be part of the story. But at a certain point, when you said overcast, Alex, at first I didn't think you meant that it had too many, uh, uh, like, recognizable names in it. I thought you meant that it had too many characters in it. Oh, yeah. And 
and I do think this has maybe one too many characters. I think part of what I liked about um, the first and the third uh, Living Dead movies in particular is the cast is so lean, it feels like you're watching a play, and it you can really kind of build more character conflicts and have a bit richer characters. You have more time to develop with them. This yeah. is the first one that wouldn't really work as a play. Might work as a uh, no. novel, but not as a play. Right. I mean, they did do a Toxic Avenger musical. They off Broadway. They did a Reanimator musical off Broadway. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think um, I like seeing a, modern, a contemporary zombie film, though. That's not you know as self serious and boring as The Walking Dead turned out to be. <laughs> um, it was kind of cool seeing like a contemporary. Right. Yeah. And Simon Baker is Riley, who is kind of the other lead in this picture. I think is really flat. I don't think he. I don't like his performance at all. Yeah. He's an Australian actor. He does a good uh, kind of generic American accent here, but it, it doesn't it doesn't quite pop like I would kind yeah, of want I it to. I think like the, his best performance was in LA Confidential, where he does kind of play like a, just a square job boy toy. You know what I mean? Mm. And that's kind of how he comes off in this too, unfortunately. Which yeah. Is, uh, which is too bad because I'm always I'm always rooting for you know young actors and um, it's just kind of yeah I don't know he's, he feels a little flat. So in conclusion, I give Land of the Dead a sequel. Yes, this was a lot better than I was expecting. I kind of thought it would be because he's doing it at Universal. It's a bigger budget. I thought he would kind of I, I guess sell out on some of his tendencies or like the edges would be shaved off. But I think it's still a pretty gritty picture and pretty gory and and all this stuff. Uh, we watch, or at least Thrasher and I watched the unrated version. Uh, so I think that added some more of the gore to it. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between that and the theatrical cut. But yeah, I, I was really pleased uh, with this movie. And it's a shame that the two other movies after this in the series have such a low, low budget for Romero to work with. Because I think if the scope could have been more or, or something like what he would have done with more money to continue that his zombie saga uh, really could have been something. Well, and beyond, beyond that, aside, aside from, you know, having this really bankable franchise, uh, this, this movie more than doubled its budget uh, at the box office. To say nothing, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm sure of like DVDs. It, it is, mm. it is a sin that Romero couldn't just be a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't getting trusted with with the resources he needed. Yeah, I mean, like lesser yeah. movies have recouped a smaller percentage of their budget in box office and gotten to do like you know extended universes and franchises before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> it's it's a shame that um, Ramiro was just always struggling to to you know patch his movies together. Um, he, it really is one of the cases of uh, of. of just it's just a bad case of, of someone who didn't who's was ignored by mainstream Hollywood or maybe it's good that he was ignored because we might not have gotten all the other great films he made. Well, it's actually it's fun, funny you mentioned that. So yeah, I'm I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes, as well. I, I am amazed at how strong the legs on this franchise are, uh, and and just see, seeing Leguizamo and Dennis Hopper ride again. Uh, in, in, uh, in, and especially in this movie, I just thought it was a delight. So one thing I noticed uh, while doing some pre-search is that the during during the making of the movie, at one point, uh, Fox was involved in the making of this movie, and they were pressing mm. really hard to either title this movie "Night of the Living Dead" or "Night of the Living Dead: Dead Reckoning." And part of the reason, and apparently, it turns out the whole reason they were doing that, it, they were trying to, in a roundabout way, gain control of the entire 
of Night of the Living Dead franchise by grafting the title of the first movie onto it because of its ambiguous copyright status and therefore the copyright status of derivative works. And that's part of why Romero pulled out of the Fox deal and later went to the other studio. Ah, that makes sense. Um, I would definitely give this a sequel. Yes, as well. Um, I had some nitpicks and it's, there's some, there's some clunks along the way, but um, it's definitely a strong film and a lot of fun to watch. Great. So on to pitch a sequel. If I was doing a sequel to this, pretending uh, like we usually do, you know, that there didn't do any sequels afterwards, I would um, maybe continue directly on from this story, have a direct sequel uh, for once in the series, and and have it be set in Canada. I I don't think there's that many zombie movies explicitly in Canada, although I could be wrong. I'm I'm sure there are some, and maybe have uh, a uh, maybe make it a bit more comedic have a lot of jokes about canadian politeness with zombies and maybe the canadian zombies versus american zombies you could do some things there and, and uh it would be called uh george romero would be alive in, in my timeline so he would do it and it would be called uh a boot of the dead. <laughs> Poutine of the dead. Scratch that. Poutine of the dead. <laughs> oh. Loonies and t- loonies and toonies of the living dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, I'm fascinated by by Canada. I want to do. I, so I'm going to do a Canadian one too. Mine is going to be Forest of the Living Dead. And so in this one, it's not going to be a direct sequel other than sort of thematically going with the notion of going to Canada. So it's going to involve a different group of American survivors uh, going up into Canada. But when they uh, but when they get up there, uh, they it turns out they're they're not alone in one sort of significant way. There's already this sort of huge, vibrant community of indigenous Canadians just kind of living out in the wilderness. And they're in a part of Canada that's just remote enough and just cold enough that the zombies can't operate there. Zombies don't generate body heat. So if you become a zombie, you're just going to freeze and then they can dispose of you uh, at, at their leisure. And so, you know, there is there. You know, there is there is, uh, you know, some some tension between the American survivors and the indigenous people. But now that we know that there are some heavily militarized groups operating in this this post zombie world, that's when the conflict is really going to kick into high gear, because it turns out uh, the this particular area in Canada turns out it's over an oil field and some militarized people from a major American city, let's say maybe, you know, Chicago, what, what the hell, um, they, they show up with, uh, with oil drilling equipment and they want that oil because they are still using a lot of petroleum based technology. And that's what gets, keep, keeps their fortified city running. Maybe it's Detroit, who knows? But anyway, um, so it eventually turns into a fight. The, the American refugees team up with the indigenous Canadians to fight off the people uh, from America who are trying to take the oil. And this is where the zombies come up because we know that the zombies are getting gradually smarter. The zombies have figured out fire. And so a huge horde of zombies come up from America with burning torches, setting forest fires as they go, keeping them warm, keeping them mobile. And that's going to be our big, wild, three-way conflict. And uh, everything is going to get thrown into chaos. And in the end, a very small group of survivors is going to flee this area 
with a stolen vehicle of some sort. Uh, and it's going to be a mix of American refugees. It's going to basically, it's going to be two of our American refugees, two of our indigenous Canadians and two people from the invaders who have seen the error of their ways and have decided to, to join up with the survivors. And to keep this sort of thematic thing going, they decide, well, going far north didn't work. Let's just go far south. And it's going to set up that they're going to go down to the tropics. Hmm. Like and it, is the title Night of the Living Dead in Canada? No, the Forest of the Living Dead. Forest, excuse me. I, I like the oil com uh, component. Yeah. Like Under Siege 2. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a cook. <laughs> that movie sucks. I might know uh, a thing or two about punching and kicking, but you really should try out my my uh, Tuesday night hash. I can squint a lot, beat some people up. Um, yeah, the, the Indian stuff and that's really bad. Native American stuff and that's really bad. Um, I don't know why I thought of Under Siege 2. All right, so my pitch of sequel is going to take place in Canada, and the, the remaining group of the Dead Reckonings made their way in there. However, um, Kaufman has a twin brother, uh, Lieutenant Bode Enright from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He's made a living in Canada. <laughs> and he's, um, he's got this uh, regular playing infomercial for the, uh, for the Chop Zombie. It's a, it's a uh, pneumatic chainsaw that he revised from Texas Chainsaw 2 that's got like a pneumatic zombie uh, spike that pops out of it. And he's called the Chop Zombie Man, and it's got an infomercial. What happens, though, is that the crew from the Dead Reckoning kidnap... Um, kidnap one of his uh kidnap his kids and then are trying to extort money from him live on his chop zombie chainsaw infomercial and it becomes a very tense real-time hostage negotiation and i would call this um uh lieutenant bode meets the living dead reckoning very cool uh so let's uh go to what you're watching uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, I, I, I went back to watch a sort of two formative animated classics uh, from my childhood. Uh, and I, I don't know how late we're going to run, so I will just start. Uh, so I finally, after after quite some time, I, I, I rewatched uh, Project Echo, which for a time was my favorite uh, piece of anime. And I'm happy to say it still holds up. Sci-Fi Channel would play that a lot, right? Yeah, that's actually where I first saw it. Uh, the Sci-Fi Channel, their second anime marathon hosted by Ralph Bakshi. This was one of the mm. things that they showed. And for me, it really, really was the highlight. And it, it's it's the it's what it's it's the movie that introduced to me the fact that, oh, yeah, anime can be funny. And that kind of informed my views of anime going forward uh, and in part has made me very critical about the sort of super serious, super serious anime fandom, you know, that, that, re that refuses to not only take a joke, but see the joke when it's right there in front of them. <laughs> So that's, I didn't, I know they did marathons. I didn't realize Ralph Bakshi hosted an anime marathon. Did he have anything to say about anime? Because I don't think I've ever read anything oh, about him talking about that medium. Quite a bit. Uh, a, a lot mm -hmm. of his bumpers uh, from from this uh, marathon are available on YouTube. Just look for, you know, just search Great. for like Ralph yeah. Bakshi sci-fi channel anime bumpers, what have you. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he knows animation inside and out. So he did have a lot to say. 
And and to his credit, he did spend a lot of his bumpers talking about movies that the Sci-Fi Channel wasn't showing or wasn't going to be able to show for another year or two. Like he talks a lot about Akira at one point, mm. but I remember him talking about talking about Project Echo and talking about how it was so successful that there were five there were five sequels, and there are five sequels. I've seen the whole series. It's very a very worthwhile series to get into. Given some of the shall we say uh, perviness of, of Bakshi's work, does he? get into any of that with the anime uh well he he uh, he does talk about the fact that anime is unafraid to have like sexual content right but he doesn't he doesn't go into like any like great detail there okay although that's one of the fascinating things about project echo is that it began the so the the production group that made project echo their previous work was a uh was a hentai series called like le- called like Lemon Cream, and Project Echo began as an episode of Lemon Cream. And the story goes, they kept sort of putting in jokes to the point where like, well, fuck it, we would rather this be funny than sexy. Let's just make it a comedy. And so, spun out of that, <laughs> we get this we get this anime parody, um, which is an interesting combination of 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 uh, Eastern and Western influences because the soundtrack is done by a pair of Americans, and it does make repeated references to American pop culture in addition to references to uh, Japanese pop culture. Very cool. When you say lemon cream, I thought of lemon popsicle, the uh, the first out of many Israeli uh, sex films. Oh, the goal, yeah, the Golan and Globus. The Golan Globus, yeah. Before they came to America, yeah, that was remade as I think like the Last American Virgin. I wouldn't mind I doing that correctly. series on this film. Tracking those down might be tricky, but that's uh, might be worth it though. Yeah, as the poster says, the fabulous flavor of the fifties. But I guess it's like to get <laughs> to give if you haven't. 19... Oh, it's in nineteen eighty-six. I said Project Echo. Uh yeah, it came out in nineteen eighty-six. Uh, okay, and, yeah, I, I'm looking it up now. And I guess just just to give people context, so it's it's about it's about three high school girls, Aiko, Biko, and Siko. And there's a reason there's an in like there's a joke because that basically was a code in like in like manga and anime. If you had a triangle of characters, it used it would literally be referred to in story breakdowns as the A character, the B character, and the C character. Yeah. But the the short of it is that, and it's also just a, a great bait and switch. The beginning of this movie, but the short the short of it is that Aiko is like is sort of like your your typical like uh, Japanese schoolgirl protagonist. She's always late for school. Oh, by the way, she has superpowers. Um, and her best friend is this complete childish ditz named Siko. And they enroll in a new school, and at this new school is an overachieving bully named Biko. But Biko, being rich and overachieving and a super genius, she bullies people with giant robots. <laughs> and so it's all about Aiko dealing with this bully <laughs> who uses military ordnance and robots to sort of humiliate people and, and rule the school. Uh, and, and all of her character motivations are so delightfully petty um, and it all takes a sudden turn when aliens invade. And, and once, and the thing is like, it's st- part of the bait and switch means it starts very slow, but once it starts about like a fifth of the, a fifth to a quarter of the way in, it never stops. It is just unrelenting with how things 
push forward. Um, you, can, you there's there's of course a lot of like in jokes, a lot of references uh, to to popular anime works of of the era um, that they take to extremes. I love the alcoholic starship captain, which is a very thinly disguised parody of Captain Harlock. And it's just, it's just, you know, and it's endlessly entertaining. Um, the audio, I will describe the audio as weird. It's just like if you the dub, the dub's not bad. Uh, it, the the voice acting's pretty good, but the audio is mixed, just very strangely. Like no one sounds like they were recorded or played back at the right volume. Huh. Yeah, you never know what you're going to get with dubbing back then. I also love this era of anime, like, you know, the classics like Akira and like Doom Megalopolis and stuff like that. Um, I would definitely have to check this out. Yeah, Project Project Aco, definitely worth your time. Sounds pretty cool. Uh, Alex, what is something you've been watching? Um, I watched uh, The Endless not too long ago. Have you guys seen this recent horror film from 2017? No. It's really wild. Um, I was kind of cautious going into it because I, you know, I, I knew it was like uh, younger directors, and I do, you know, it's there's well, there's a lot of new, a lot of horror coming out, obviously, all the time, and you know, a lot of it's hit or miss. And I'm thinking like, oh, it's high concept horror, you know, younger directors. I don't know what's going to happen here, and it turned out to be a really, really heady, uh, very. Um, dense but reliably entertaining and surprisingly funny um horror film i wouldn't even it's almost sounds like a stretch called horror film it's basically uh these two brothers who are recently reformed from being cult members who grew up in a cult and one of the brothers kind of got like uh, almost like a stockholm syndrome he like doesn't like the kind of life they're living wants to go back so to humor him he brings older brother brings him back as like, like one day and then you can say your goodbyes and we're out of here. And then it kind of falls into this, I don't even want to describe anymore. It'll kind of give to, give it away. Um, but I'll say it's one of the better, more modern time paradox, cosmic horror type uh, films. It's really fascinating. I think it came out in 2017. Um, so yeah, I would definitely check out and recommend The Endless. It's directed by Aaron Moorhead, Moorhead and Justin Benson. Um, I guess they've done a couple other movies like this, but um, this is my introduction to them, and I would definitely recommend The Endless. Really cool flick. Um, sounds cool. Yeah, uh, I was going down a lemon popsicle rabbit hole, I have to apologize. And there are maybe ten movies in that series, including Remix. Really? Yeah, and there's a uh, out-of-print German DVD collection that unfortunately is German-dubbed with no subtitles. I'll have to keep... Uh, I'll have to keep digging into that later, but that would be interesting to cover those on on the show. And and they're not called Lemon Popsicle Five or whatever. They're they're names like uh, Up Your Anchor, Summertime Blues, Baby Love, Private Popsicles is one of my favorites of them. Well, okay, I gotta say that sounds like. And now on the BBC, Up Your Anchor, starring Fraser <laughs> Hayes and Tony. Followed Adenock. followed by Private Popsicle. <laughs> I have a private popsicle. I've had yeah, a private... <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> last time I had a private popsicle was back in college. I don't talk about those days very much. But uh, in, anyhow, this film from Golden and Globus is, is no Israeli treat. Uh, please enjoy. So, for... Uh, da, 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 yeah, something I've been watching is the uh, recent uh, Child's Play remake. Just called Child's Play. We haven't talked about Child's Play in this show either. That's something else to add to the list. There's a lot of those. Although I think we should probably finish up Hellraiser first, but that's another story. Um, 
this child's play, you know, MGM has the rights to the first child's play. And then Universal had the rights to all the others. Uh, and then it went to New Line eventually. Um, so with Child's Play, it's this remake. I don't know. Thrasher and I were talking about it as I was watching it. But the redesign of Chucky looks bad. I hate how yeah. it looks. It it looks... What's well, one of those things where how can this be a product? It looks ugly. terrifying. Who would want to buy this? The original not... one, is, like I could see buying that. It's still creepy, but like that, it looks like a toy that exists. Yeah, <laughs> this one, I mean? it, it looks both over and under designed. I don't know. It looks really, it doesn't look like a toy. You're right. That That's the problem with it. Mark Hamill does a good job voicing Chucky. Um, and the, what the hell? Uh, do you remember the name of the guy who, who wrote and directed some of the movies? Oh, some of the Child's Play movies. Yeah. Um, it's an Italian name. It's not, it's not Mancini. Tom Holland? No. Tom Holland? You directed the first one. Yeah. Let me see here. Don Mancini? That's it. It is Mancini. Wow. Yeah, yeah Don Mancini is um, has a Child's Play TV series he was developing at the same time this remake came out. And he was very mad that they basically did this remake because Chucky was becoming hot again after he was announcing that he was developing a TV series and he was concerned the TV series would be killed. Uh, it turns out his TV series of Child's Play is coming out, but it's going to be airing on both USA and sci-fi, which is huh. kind of weird. And Brad Dureef is back as Chucky. I, I don't know where it fits in the Child's Play timeline, which is a fucking complicated timeline. And, uh, but, but this new, this newer, uh, Child's Play, I, yeah, I, I didn't really like it. I liked Aubrey Plaza in it. There's some things I thought were okay. I like the, the buddy song. I like the score by Bear McCreary that was made with, um, he captured samples of like children's instrument toys and then kind of used that to, to perform on the score. Uh, Thrasher, did you have any thoughts on that? We'll probably cover this in the show in detail at some point, but. No, that overall, like overall, I, I was generally entertained, but the, the, like this, it didn't need to be a child's play movie. It struck, it struck me. I, I feel like this had to have been a pre-existing script about a high-tech teddy bear that then had Child's Play grafted onto it. <laughs> and I think and I think that kind of holds it back because Child's by 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 making it part of the Child's Play franchise it brings certain expectations uh that I unfortunately think do do hold the movie back. That and, that and the the whole solution to the problem is here's your problem. Someone set this doll for evil. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, in the opening, you're right. Yeah. Like, it's not really technology gone wrong. Like, there's just apparently an evil setting for this damn doll. That's that's bad. <laughs> and and it's implied in the opening scene that the uh, the worker in Vietnam building the toy together sabotaged the doll uh, before killing himself. So it's. <sighs> Yeah, kind of, kind of a weird one. There's a very sadistic scene involving a pet cat oh. that I did not care for. Yeah. But uh, let's do sequel scene. Uh, you said it only has two parts in it. So um, who's feeling like acting this morning? Well, I'm always feeling like acting. I'm I'm down. Okay, you you both can do it. And why don't why don't you set the scene, Thrasher? All right. So so this is this is uh, when. When uh, 
Riley is sent out on his mission and he's given two, he's given two, he's given some backup uh, from uh, from Kaufman in the form of Pillsbury Monolet, named after the famous bullfighter, which he points out. And it turns out that is a real guy. And and Motown are sort of the three security goons who are who are sent with him, uh, are sent with him and uh, uh, Charlie. Uh, and he decides he doesn't want to take the vehicle that's going to be assigned to them. He wants a different vehicle, so they have to hotwire it. And so Mo- Motown is busy hotwiring the car, and Pillsbury is giving her some advice. Oh, so, right. All and right. I... So, Mo- so Motown's hotwiring her. Yellow to red. What the fuck does a Samoa know about hotwiring a fucking car? 50,000 cars are stolen in Samoa every year. Yeah, well, a million in Detroit. Yeah, well, Detroit has 50 million cars. Samoa, 50,000. Every one of them stolen. There you go. I love that. That just just reminded me of how, due to the embargo with Cuba, Cuba could not get cars for the longest time. So, like, Cuba, up until, like, the late 90s, most of their, like, most of their vehicles were, like, old Fords that they kept continually, like, from the... 40s and 50s that kept like like, keeping in circulation and keeping tuned up those like bulbous like tanker cars yeah that's almost charming in a way i would love to see that although i don't think you can legally go to cuba anymore as an american citizen i believe is that right i don't know i i am sure that's one of the many things that has been thrown into absolute chaos by the past (sighs) years yeah that too Okay. But my Castro is dead, right? Like he hasn't been yeah. seen in public for years. And I, I don't recall them announcing his death, but he has to be dead, right? He is dead. Yeah, it happened to 2018, a couple of years ago. Did the, his brother is the next person in power? Is that right? Or I believe, I, yeah, I believe he assumed at least the title of uh, leadership. I thought there'd be. I think you know there. I thought there'd be a coup by now, but this is uh, not not the politics cast. This is sequel cast too. Uh, next week. <laughs> We'll be talking about Survival of the Dead. And uh, after we're done with the Living Dead series, we'll be doing Wayne's World Party Time. Excellent. Didn't anyone, speaking of Wayne's World, did anyone catch on the last Oscars? Uh, Dana Carvey and Mike Myers presented an award and they did it in character as Wayne and Garth. Oh, I missed that. It, 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 look it up on YouTube. It's a good bit. However, they were not dressed as Wayne and Garth. They were dressed like in suits, which Uh-oh. made it not quite work as well. They might have had the wig or something, but it. Uh, Tia Carrera is in the audience, and they were trying to drum up interest, I think, in a Wayne's World 3. I, I, I miss Mike Myers. I'll just say that. Yeah. I don't know what the... He's, he's had some kids, and he's on a, his second or third marriage or something like that. But... Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm, he has all the money in the world. He doesn't have to do anything. But right. I'm kind of surprised that like Netflix hasn't announced another Wayne's World. It seems like the yeah. kind of thing they might do. It's like just reboot mm. culture and nostalgia baiting. It would be it's a no brainer, right? Right. I mean, speaking of Netflix, you know, they have a deal with uh, Eddie Murphy made a deal with Paramount where they're going to be doing a Beverly Hills Cop four for Netflix. They sold the rights to Netflix, to, and if it's successful, they're going to do a five. Beverly Hills Cop for this, the very first series we covered on sequel cast was Beverly Hills Cop. That's right. And, That's uh, a Vince sequel cast right there. Yeah, where Rasher wasn't even, I, I don't think you were on for that first episode because you had something else going on, but you were on for the yeah. second one. 
Yeah, I wasn't on. The first episode I was on was Smoking the Bandit too. Oh my god, yeah. So Jersey Jason, you're on episode five. Uh, anyhow, that's a long time ago. But um, Beverly Hills Cop is one of my favorite series. I've been wanting to see a four for a while. They've been trying to make it. They get very close to making it with Brett Ratner. Didn't happen. Was, that was going to be like a darker script. Uh, I, I don't think you need to, um, if you're going to soft reboot Beverly Hills Cop, I don't think it needs to be darker, but I think it yeah. should be rated R and be kind of yeah. uh, edgier. Yeah. And uh, I guess we'll end on that note. What do you think, if you could do a new Beverly Hills Cop, what would you do? Hmm. With Eddie Murphy in it. With Eddie Murphy in it. Yeah. I would I would do a I would do a Creed thing. I would have Eddie Murphy as a as a Wiley chief, and then do like a Donald Glover as the Beverly yeah. Hills cop. So to bring him back to Beverly Hills, because mm. remember he's like a Detroit cop. To br- so True. to bring him back to Beverly Hills, a bunch of Uncle Dave movies are coming out on DVD. My God! Donald but because. Dave. Axel the Fox appears in some of the bonus features. They have to get him to sign off on it due to image rights. So that's why he goes to Beverly Hills is he has to sign some paperwork, collect some money so that these DVDs can be released. But while he's there, uh, what the hell he's framed for murder by somebody connected to the crooks. He took down in the first movie and he has to clear and he has to run around uh, Beverly Hills to clear his name. I can't believe you're going back to the well with Axel Fox. (laughs) <laughs> continuity is important to me like i need and it's like can you name a more organic way to get him back to beverly hills well in mine i wouldn't do beverly hills at all i would use the unproduced script for beverly hills cop 3 that had it set in london and it would have co-starred john cleese oh wow uh, and um eddie murphy turned it down because he wanted to shoot something in the metro los angeles area interesting he didn't yeah, want to uh, Beverly Cops, Beverly Hills Cop Four has a letterbox profile, and it's uh, posted as 2021. The thing you mentioned, Alex, was uh, they filmed uh, Barry Sonnenfeld filmed, but they never it didn't get picked up to series a Beverly Hills Cop TV show about the Sun. Oh, okay. Really, I thought that part of that had aired. Did it not? No. Mm-mm. Oh. I'm uh, thinking of Lethal Weapon. Perhaps you know, you know, there might have been like a, a teaser for it, or maybe Eddie Murphy being interviewed on the set about it on Entertainment Tonight. But um, I've heard it's awful. I would love to get a hold of that. Uh, I guess it, the credited directors are the guys who did Bad Boys for Life. Oh, or interesting. Or, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen Bad Boys for Life, but it looks fun. And you know, Eddie Murphy is kind of back in the spotlight. Although, as Eddie Murphy says, which I don't agree with, he's never been out of the spotlight because his movies are always on TV, which is <laughs> kind of a cop out. Uh, he has a sequel to Coming to America coming out, so we could add that to the show when that oh, to, t- to that release. It was going to be in theaters. They filmed it in Atlanta uh, before the pandemic, but mm. anyhow, speaking of which, you can get in. This is a terrible transition. Leave us a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also hear us on Spotify. And uh, if you like SequelCast 2 and friends, you know, tell your friends. And uh, on Twitter, at SequelCast 2. And you can send us an email, SequelCast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter, at Internet Mayor. Uh, we are uh, getting closer and closer to the day that the Fading Suns Pax Alexia edition uh, will be released. So I did have a hand uh, in some of the supplements for that. So that's a game line uh, worth checking out. 
Uh, also, I'm so I mentioned the Scarefest earlier uh, in the episode. Hypothetically, Scarefest 2020 is still happening, and hypothetically, I will be there, though I will be in a mask and I will be social distancing. But if you're going to be in Lexington uh, and at the Scarefest, and let me, I guess I better give you the dates, uh, shouldn't I? Uh, and you're going to be at the Scarefest, you know, hey, maybe say hi. That will be October 23rd through the 27th in the Lexington Convention Center. Again, hypothetically, for all I know, it's going to get canceled like so many things are. But if it does, I will, of course, tell you on a future episode of Sequel Cast. Excellent. Yeah, Thrasher wow. and I are trying to get something going at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon. But um, oh, yeah. I don't know yet if that's being canceled or not. The website hasn't been updated in a while. I have to reach out to my contact there. Alex. Um, you can find me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914. And if you want to see some cool, weird stuff, I've got a YouTube channel called The Trailer Project with uh, trailer commentaries and a lot of freewheeling uh, essay shorts. So check it out. Why the 1914? It was the year William Burroughs was born. <laughs> okay. I was in college. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer for everything. Um, okay, <laughs> great. So uh, until next time, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Saying. So, man, if uh, you would have called me a little bit ago, I, I wouldn't have shot the guy, but, but, but I shot him. But I have this Maui Wowie that kind of takes the edge off. So just have a little bit of that and we'll all get through this zombie thing okay. I got my driver. Oh, look, Brian, it's Dennis Hopper. Did you see the movie where he played the raving lunatic? I don't know, man, but I ain't a doper, man. I mean, I quit drinking, man, but it doesn't mean I don't poke a little bit, man. No, Pinky. <laughs> Howdy do, I'm Colonel Kurtz, fat and bald like old Fred Mertz. Watch me do a hula dance and shake the egg rolls from my pants. He's not <laughs> bad, he's really just an odd man. God, man. And I shave my head like, Dan like Dennis Rodman. He's a god, he's a god man. No me pueden limitar el rap del desierto GL2003 C plan G control M A C H E T E en tu radio sí